Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is a very special one, probably one of my favorites. We talk about Navy SEAL culture, professional basketball culture, and something that many of you have probably never even heard of before due to how rare it is, military startups. I had the privilege to work and live alongside Rob Newson during a military startup, and today we get to hear his perspective as he was the CEO of a very, very unique military startup, and we get to hear what he did to impact and develop the culture. Check it out. Today, we have a very, very special guest. I am so excited for this one personally. We have Mr. Rob Newson. He currently serves as the VP of Strategy and Vision for the Philadelphia 76ers. He's responsible for cultivating championship DNA, integrating innovation efforts, supporting leadership development and decision-making, and advancing athlete care. He's got a wide and long list as a resume. It's incredible. He previously served as the director for the White House, responsible for the support of the president, Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, Presidential Food Service, White House. So much. Served 30 years in the United States Navy SEALs. That's where I got to meet him. He is a startup specialist uh, leading or part of six separate new military organizations. And there's my son walking in during COVID in my intro. Awesome. Love it. It's a real <laughs> deal here. It's yeah, called that's wrong right. it. Yeah. <laughs> he served 14 years as a strategist, working with small uh, work group teams, teaming across organizations, government agencies, analyzing, framing complex challenges. Man, this is special. He also served as a federal executive fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, holds a BS in computer sci from University of Kansas, an MS in defense analysis, and an MA in national security affairs, both from the, the Naval Postgraduate School. He also holds a PhD in leadership studies from the University of San Diego. It is my pleasure, very, very much so, to welcome Rob to the show. So Rob, thank you so much for being here. 
Uh, it's my pleasure, Kyle. I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. Happy to be with you. And I appreciate the work that you've been doing with One More Wave. Just great stuff for our veterans. Cool. I love it. I, so hey, Rob, been, I love. can I just ask a question straight off the bat? All that, yeah. um, all that impressive resume uh, that we listed. Um, probably the we've had some great people on here, um, and that has to be one of the most extensive and impressive uh, opening uh, introductions we've ever had. But my first question is: In charge of White House food services, does that mean you were the food taster for the president, or <laughs> what does that entail? Well, so. Um, I work in the White House military office. That's all of the military support to the president, including the Presidential Food Service, which is a Navy organization um, known as the Navy Mess. They do a fantastic job responsible for both making the meals and serving the president. The valets are part of the Presidential Food Service that are constantly with the president, both in his residence and in the Oval Office. And uh, they do a tremendous job. A, a great friend of mine, Rose, a master chief, actually runs that. And it was funny. Uh, Keith Davids, as is, is you probably know, a SEAL admiral was in charge when I was his deputy. And we had a commander, Navy commander in charge. And Keith said, I think that uh, Rose can do this and should do this. So the, the command master chief of the Navy was visiting us and he, and he turned to the CNO and he said, you know, only a SEAL would, would put a, a master chief in charge where a commander was, and she's absolutely crushing it. <laughs> so um, it's great. It's great to see leadership at all levels, but but Rose is doing a fantastic job in the Navy mess. That's awesome. So you didn't have to taste the food. Unless, I mean, it just sounds like it was great food. You're happy to taste. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. But yeah, I, I didn't put my life on the line uh, testing <laughs> the president's food. That's <laughs> uh, ridiculous. I've been so... Oh, I love it. I love it. I've been so excited. I've been telling Chris, Rob, I'm so excited about this pod uh, recording because you are a very unique perspective that uh, not many civilians get to hear about. And and simultaneously, I was a part of this perspective, which I'm, I'm going to talk yeah. to you about. You know, I, you and I have never really gotten a chance to really sit down and, and hear it from you. I think it's so fascinating for our listeners. What the perspective that I'm talking about is Rob got to start a new command in our community in the, in the Naval Special Warfare, which is very rare to do. And back in 2006, I believe you started in 2006, maybe 2005. I could be yeah. wrong. You started ruminating the idea. Yeah. And uh, my buddy, Chris, you know, Rob Garnett, he and I got to be a part of this and it was incredible. So the, the, the question I would love to ask you, Rob, is at that time, you know, late 2005, you're going through this, you're finding out, hey, this is going to be my next mission. What what was your big thought process in terms of, hey, how do I define the culture how do I kind of own the culture that we're going to have at this new team, which is going to have this different, unique mission set, but it's going to be very kind of different from what a lot of the Navy SEALs are kind of used to, you know, like how, how what was going through your head back then? I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So there was a couple of things that we were we were thinking about. Um, so the mission of the command was to integrate all of the intelligence capabilities that were available and create a um, targeting engine for the Navy SEAL teams who deployed. Um, and, and this was scattered all about. So we had several functions that we had to create at the same time. One 
was to, to create best in class for each of those intelligence capabilities, where whether it was analytical or signals intelligence or unattended sensors. And so we had groups working on all of that. And, and my main thought about the culture was this can't be about the groups. That this the, the idea and the concept that the SEALs created was um, no more stovepipes and intelligence. Intelligence had to be integrated and we were gonna have SEALs lead it. Instead of an intelligence officer that ran an intelligence command, we had SEALs in charge of a bunch of multifunctional, cross-functional intelligence specialists. And, and so we had to bring in the SEAL culture and SEAL mentality, right? Um, never quit, get after the mission, support your teammates, and that was all new to a lot of the intelligence specialists that came with it. So they're coming from the fleet, they're learning their job, which was very tactical and, and in the field, and they're learning SEAL culture. So that was that was a piece of it. And the other piece was bringing in SEALs who, you know, everybody joins the SEAL teams to go on, on missions and, and to get after it, they're commandos. And so bringing in commandos and telling them, okay, now your job is to help your teammates get on the right target at the right time and destroy this network in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so it was a different, it was a different job. It was probably much more challenging than, than leading in the field. And, and there was field operations to be done. So there was all kinds of multiple cultures that we were blending together. And then we had to get the SEAL teams to accept us. Um, we were stealing money and people and resources from them and telling them, no, you're going to love us. We're going to give you something better. And and we had to convince them of that. And I know for the guys that were playing with the SEALs, it was it was hard early on to to get them to accept something new and, and to deliver a product that was world class. But the bottom line, Kyle, is what you guys did at that team before we started the success rate, which we call jackpot um, on a mission was 35 percent. And that was because we were time late on intelligence. We we didn't have great target packages. Two years later, after we'd been cooking with gas, our success rate in Iraq was 95%. So that's a game changer for SEALs in action. Unwrap that one, Chris. Oh, man. I didn't <laughs> start. So, so I love the phrase jackpot. That's good. Um, and then how did you – what do you attribute that to, Rob? Like you come in, you put people in charge. Um you know, Kyle and I started this podcast and, and this passion that we have because we tend to think leadership's overrated, that we tend to overprepare and indulge in us unnecessary things with leadership training, all to create better leaders. Uh, but research reveals that 79% of employees leave their jobs due to lack of appreciation, meaning that even though we're, we spend so much time trying to create great leadership, that people are pretty miserable, a high, high majority of people, almost 80% don't feel appreciated yet, you're able to come in, uh, put in your people, and still this uh, mentality that uh, you're gonna change things, get everybody on board and actually make a difference where people feel valued and appreciated. So what were some of those steps you did and why do you think we're so bad at this with all the leadership training that goes on today? Well, so a piece of it relates to um, Letting experts be experts, right? So I'm I'm a SEAL 05 commander um, who has minimal background, kind of a, a a small user 
exchange with intelligence. I don't know anything about signals intelligence and collecting information from cell phones. I know a little bit about what our analysts did. You know, I didn't know anything about UAVs and sensors. And um, so you have to trust the people who know their job and and really press them to refine it. And then, you know, we, we put a ton of responsibility on young SEAL lieutenants and chiefs and senior chiefs who were responsible for building these guys. So it was it was leadership at every level. Uh, and I, I'm with you that, a, you know, the concept of a single leader um, is overrated. And, you know, I'm from the McChrystal and McRaven School and JSOC, where it was a team of teams. And you pushed information down to the to um, the edge of the organization and you expected people to make decisions and lead at their level. And and if you tried not to be involved with a decision, if you weren't adding any value to it. So I think that's a key a key piece of, of leadership is, you know, does are, are they waiting me on me to make a decision? And if so, what what value am I adding? If if I'm just reviewing their recommendation and 99% of the time saying yes, that's a waste of time. Let people take responsibility and move out. And, and so that's kind of the the Joint Special Operations Command model of, of um, distri- distributed and networked leadership. And, and I think we we modeled that and had that in our mind when we, we stood up the new command. Oh, absolutely. And and you know, for the listeners out there, I mean, this is just living proof. Here I am 15 years later, I was a plank owner of that command with Rob. And here I am 15 years later, still looking for Rob's guidance, still learning from him, still seeking his wisdom. I mean, that's, that's powerful, Rob. I mean, that's powerful. So, so kudos. I, I loved your answer on that. Oh, I'm still so kind let of marinating. Let me jump in here. <laughs> yeah, let me go jump ahead. in here go ahead. ask, uh, Along those lines, so that I mean, that's really great um, how you came in with your uh, Navy spill experience and and sort of utilize that team and build it. But you're doing something wildly different now. You're working with an NBA team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how how do those things relate, and how are you able to take that for the military? Because that's another thing, Kyle and I, are, the the kind of the combination here. Kyle's the steel. I'm this business guy. Um, he can be a business guy. I can never be a steel. I mean, so he's he's always got a little one up on me, but. Um, how do you bring those two things together uh, well, to help so it's Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I think most of us in the military operate on this, this leadership theory that, hey, you know, we have been taught to adapt and integrate at an incredibly high pace. You know, I, I would go on deployments with um, JSOC that were four months long. I wasn't at the command. And they put me in charge as director of some small task force. And I had to learn the group incredibly fast. I had to adapt myself to that existing culture and then let let great people do great things. And and so there's this theory that I'm operating under. And I think most most veterans are that I think I can take this skill set and apply it to almost anything. I don't know, you know, I know nothing about the NBA. I know nothing about um, professional sports in in general. And so when when I was getting interviewed for the 76ers, one of the vice presidents asked me and he was passionate. He said, why are you so excited about being in the NBA? 
And I looked at him and I said, I'm not. I <laughs> I am I am not interested in professional sports or basketball. What I'm interested in, what I'm passionate about is teams, leadership and culture. And you guys are talking about that and you want someone to help you with that. And I think I'm your guy. And so they, you know, I hit it off with Elton Brand, the general manager, and they took, I think they took a big chance on hiring a guy with zero industry experience and and making him uh, one of the senior executives on the basketball team. So uh, it's it's a to answer your question, what what are we bringing? What do I bring? It's a focus on teams, leadership, and culture, and. Um, the, the Sixers have a great culture, you know, they understand teams, but it's it's a different way of integrating. And same when I was brought into the White House, my boss at the time, another Navy SEAL, said, look, I want to work on culture. And and a lot of places I've been, there's there's an undercurrent of fear, right? It's very transactional where you're in an elite world. And what have you done for me lately? And so it's it's using my background in, in teams, leadership and culture to try to give some psych, psychological safety around what people are doing to empower the experts and to really create a deeper sense of who the team is and, and what we're going after. And, and I'm, I am passionate about discussions of culture and um, how how we get after that in an implicit way. I mean, an explicit way. If, if you don't focus on your culture, your culture is going to be built without any any guidance and it will it will consume you unless you focus on it and and actively build it. And so that's that's kind of my my pitch on what I'm trying to do with with 76ers and what we try to do in the White House military office. Rob, when you went in, did you have to uh, help them kind of define their desired culture that they wanted to have at the organization? Yeah, we're, and we're still working through that. I've only been with the 76ers since um, late January. So I had about six weeks before um, the virus hit and we went into to hiatus. And, and then I became kind of Mr. Coronavirus Task Force for the basketball side, working with, with our corporate partners on, on the response. But it, it is. It's it's teasing out with the executives and then with with, you know, our next step is to get with every department and, and talk about what what their values are. What are they driving towards? And, and, you know, it's easy to say our our objective is to win multiple NBA championships. OK, got it. Now, what what does that mean to have championship DNA that enables that? And that's that's what we're working through. And really, it's a lot of conversations. When when I first got there, I talked about, um, you know, my leadership lessons from from the teams. And one of them is if, if you don't focus on your values every day, if you don't think about them, then when you're faced with a decision, values will not be in the forefront of your mind. And I've seen people, I've had great friends, I've seen others who I've highly respected who made incredibly questionable decisions and they didn't live up to their values. And I, I strongly suspect if you talk to them, they'd say, yeah, I, I made a mistake. And I think the reason they did is they didn't think about what their values are, what mattered. 
you know, when you're pressed into a really hard situation, when when you've screwed up and I've been there, when I've screwed up and you've got, a, a, you know, some of your people saying, hey, boss, I think we can skirt around this by doing X, Y or Z. You need to step back and think, OK, what it, what does that mean to our values and what signal are we sending the command if I'm trying to, to you know, not get in trouble instead of owning what we've done? And so values, val values discussion is the first step in in getting clear on your culture, I think. Interesting, you know, when you say culture, uh, what I found is a lot of people believe it has everything to do with perks, you know? Uh, do they have a ping pong table in the lunchroom? Do you get free dry cleaning? Um, when you think of culture though, what does it mean? Well, so uh, there's there's a lot of aspects to culture, but but my shorthand for culture is, is what what people expect to be rewarded and punished for and how people make decisions when no one is watching them from an organizational perspective if you can get people on the same page and understand what actions are expected desired and and celebrated then that's that's what we're talking about with culture and you know you can say well, they have a laid back culture or they have a, a very tight bureaucratic culture, but it's culture is not the feel of a place. It's it's how people live and the expectations that they place on themselves and their teammates. I'm writing that down. That's OK. That's good stuff. <laughs> I was I was chin down, too. <laughs> I love that soundbite. So as you guys. Uh, Rob, as you guys have been going through this, uh, a lot of times when Chris and I are talking to, you know, maybe a young entrepreneur or a young business owner, and they want it to just happen overnight, right? And, you know, we all know that just that takes time. I mean, it took us years at the at the new team uh, to kind of yeah. refine and get and get to a place where we all wanted to be. And, and I would love to hear, you know, your perspective on on the time is, is not what people should be focusing on. Right. Cause a lot of times I hear these, I hear these questions, not, well, how long is this going to take? How long is this going to take? You know? Um, so my frame in that, right, Chris, you, you kind of help yeah, me out you know, here. One of the things I think uh, people think, Oh, culture, I'll come in. I'll just, uh, I'll set it on fire in two months and two weeks. And, you know, Kyle is right. One of the things that Kyle's taught me that's been fascinating, I think uh, for most of us who aren't uh, in the uh, military world, but are fascinated with Navy SEALs is that, you know, you watch these buds documentaries and they go through hell week and you're like, great, you're Navy SEAL. And he's like, no, nah, actually it takes about two or three years before you get, you know, your, your command, or you get to go out on your first mission or things like that. until you're fully sort of an accredited SEAL. Um, and so I think that we're a little confused at, you know, maybe leadership is easy because I can go and take a, a six hour course on a Friday afternoon um, on leadership training and come back. Uh, but culture sometimes takes a couple of years maybe to fully completely transition and turn around. And so it's way harder and we maybe don't ignore it or we give up on it. Um, you know, I don't know what my question is there, except maybe some observation. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that observation. No, I, those are fascinating um, observations on your guys' part, and it, it certainly got me thinking. You know, when I when I think about culture and, and hear somebody say, well, how long is this going to take? 
Um, my response is your entire life. Right. Yes. Um, that's, you know, culture defines how you live and, and how an organization lives and breathes and responds to, to threats and opportunities. So, yeah, I've been, I've been talking to, a, you know, a, a couple of venture capital funds who are focused on their founders. And it's, it's easy, I think, when you're starting and, you know, Kyle and I have been in the military startup business, it's easy to focus on what you need to do, you know, to bring home the bacon. So for us, it was developing our training, you know, plan and capability. It was developing units. And, and that's, that's the, the traditional tactical, easy stuff. And, and that's not to say that it's, it's it's simple or it happens in an easy way, but that's straightforward. Um, what people lose focus on is being explicit about their culture, and I think this applies to founders, right? You're 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 really worried about making revenue so that you can pay the small number of people that are are believing in your vision, and you own all of that, and so you can get consumed with what you have to do, and my pitch when I talk to founders is, is look, don't, don't lose sight of teams, leadership and culture. And, and every day and every week, think about what you're doing to, to put stakes in the ground. Um, you know, my, my, as you said, my background is in computer science and I know nothing much like MBA. I know nothing about computers and computer science <laughs> these days. It's, it's 35 years of, of, ancient knowledge. But one thing that it it taught me is, is, you know, to think in branches and sequels. And the second thing was that design design decisions early on are are make or break. And to me, that's the same way about culture. If you build an organization where early on you're cutting corners and and just getting things done to get them done instead of demanding quality and demanding a response to your values, that's going to be hard to break. Those are paths and ruts in the road that are hard to fill in. And so you have to think when you're starting a new organization, what is this going to mean? And I did. When we started the command, Kyle, I was thinking, what what is the way, how in the way we do business is, is it going to affect the guys five years from now? And, you know, I want them I want them to be on the best foundation. And I tell you, I go visit that command and those guys are doing eye watering stuff for the nation. And um, it was I think a large part was the foundation that that we built. And that wasn't me. You know, that was guys like you and Rob and Dano that were were driving hard to instill a culture that demanded high quality and you know, teams, leadership, and culture. My my next question was gonna was gonna be exactly along those lines of um, you know, how you define success in those terms, but uh, you pretty much answered it right there. Is you look you look down the road several years, you know, ten years. I mean, we're at fifteen years later now, and like you just said, eye watering stuff. It's incredible. It's incredible. 
I mean, they, I don't know. I took Chris down there. We did a tour. Chris, that monstrosity of a building on the corner, the massive building that's about, I think, I want to say like 120,000 square feet. Could be wrong. Maybe maybe more. But it's it's massive. I think they have around five, 480 personnel now. I mean, when Rob... How, how many were there right off like week one, Rob? Was it just yeah, you? There was no, there was there was um, seven of us. Seven. Me, Bob, <laughs> um, Duke, you know, Chris. Dye. I think I was number eighteen or nineteen. I yeah, think. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so, All you right, know, so on, shift, on how ahead. you define success, if, before we can before we can leave that, I I, I think it's it both is relevant to military leaders and um, business leaders that are short-term focused, right? In the military, you're you're going to be in charge of something for, for two to three years and you're moving on. And you and I have both seen it where um, a, a commander or skipper has come in, he's all liquored up and he's got a, a great vision and he's he's driving the, the guy's like it's going out of style and and he's sprinting for three years but then somebody else comes in and they're sprinting for three years and and now you've got all the guys running a marathon at sprinting pace and and so it can't be as a leader it can't be about the short term and the, and the same is is for a business right a business is you have to survive day to day and and get to your bottom line but you also have to think about what how am i just decisions um, positioning us for the future and, and certainly not enough military guys think about that but I was you know Bob Otis and I had a lot of conversations about what the legacy is going to be and how you how you build the foundations for that yeah so that actually just just sparked a uh, a thought of mine. And uh, if you don't want to go down this rabbit hole, Rob, I, I will not be offended at all. But I'd be interesting because you're you're such a I really look up to your perspective. Um, the military, you know, Chris, in the military, a, a guy like Rob will hold this position for 24, maybe 36 months. It's very rare that it ever exceeds uh, that length of time. Um there's benefits to it. There's there's certainly negatives to it when you have a great leader. Um, but there but there is uh, there is some benefits when you have like a an incorrect or uh, a poor leader, obviously. So, Rob, what do you think would be a great solution for for the the timing of leadership? I mean, we don't have that in private sector, you know. Or conversely, should private sector look to that model and actually say, hey, let's start switching out our C-suite? A little more often. Well, so I think there's, as you as you said, there's there's pros and cons to to this rotational leadership thing. Um, the 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 big pro is you get you get new blood and new energy in and a new perspective um, every two to three years, and and that is a great thing. And and the other thing that brings, I think, and I've seen it. And as as we've done some startup organizations is it gives people in the organization a new chance, right, that that they're it's kind of a clean skate slate with the boss. And and we've had some guys at at the new command 
that, you know, we're, um, we're not considered cream of the crop stellar guys. When you start a new command in the military, you're, you're taken from every organization. And, and sometimes when you, they have to pay a tax, they're not, they're not paying off the top, but they're, they're getting rid of some of the trouble children. And, what I found is I know what you're thinking over there right now, Chris. You're like, oh, Kyle was a trouble child. <laughs> the guy got Kyle now. Um, but you know, regardless of who those guys were, given the chance to excel, every you know, whether whether a team thought they were giving us um, second rate guys or or they were paying top rate on some of their people, guys stepped up, and I think part of it was. As a leader, I came in with, you know, I didn't know, nobody knew any of these guys. And, and of course, your reputation might go go along with you. But a new leader gives people some new lifeblood to say, all right, I've got a second chance. And I saw some some great guys step up and and other people were like, wow, I didn't know that guy had it in it. Look at look at him perform. And so having some kind of leadership rotation, I think, um, gives people a new slate. So those are the positives. I think the cons are that um, there's a lack of continuity and certainly there's a lack of um, commitment to the future where, you know, if I'm running a company and I know that I'm, I plan on being around for, you know, I'm Jack Welch, I'm going to be around for 10 or 15 years, I'm, I'm making long-term decisions. And some companies are great at that. And we've also seen some companies that are or all about you know shareholder satisfaction and making bad long-term decisions for short-term benefit. But I, I think that I've never thought about it before about some concept of rotating in um, new leadership or, or at a minimum in a you know big corporation enforcing some kind of rotation through the different divisions of a large corporation so people can can get a broader experience as well as um, just give the group an opportunity for another leader for some period of time. I love it. You know, I, um, in grad school, I remember, I wish I could remember the, the term or whatever they used it, but it was this sense that you get really comfortable with your team and you start to believe that your team is the best team and the company, and you can't look outside anybody else other than your team and see greatness in anyone else. So it's, it's kind of saying, you know, Robin, you and I are on a team, we're doing great. And there's this guy, Kyle over here, um, who probably has a lot of great potential, but because he's not on our team, we don't look at him that way. And so we sort of force him into a box. Um, and so I kind of like this idea that maybe you have a little bit of a rotation that comes through because it allows people to grow and you see them in different ways that you maybe um, didn't realize they had strengths in and sort of achieving. Um, all right, a couple of, let's just, uh, let's pause here and take a quick couple of turns out because I, I'm fascinated by this, but I'd love to hear a couple of your favorite stories uh, from when you were a SEAL or working at the White House? Um, so at, at the White House, you know, it's, I, I, I knew every day and, and I'd heard a story about Admiral Craven who worked in the National Security Council and he was, he was walking along, kind of along the Rose Garden with a junior officer and the guy was face down typing on his phone because, you know, there's always stuff flooding in and you, you got a job to do. And he stopped the guy and he said, hey, look up. And there's the Rose Garden and you can see the Oval Office and you can just across the South Lawn, you see Washington Monument. And he said, don't ever take for granted 
where you are. And, and I spent every day in the White House soaking in. And um, I personally loved the old executive office building, which originally was built to house um, the War Department, which was the Army, the Navy Department, and the State Department. And the history in that place is just amazing, right? That's, this is where the Japanese were walking down the hallway to, to declare war on the United States, and, and they're 40 minutes late. And the Secretary of State kicks him out. And he, I, I know what we're at war. Get out of here. I mean, it's just <laughs> a fascinating place of history. I had the opportunity to do um, West Wing tours, and I would take people um, back in the workman's passageway and underneath um, the the formal entrance of the White House is um, burn marks and, and pock marks from the War of 1812 when the British burnt the place to the ground. And so you walk around there and you just feel the thick history of the place. That, and so that was my biggest thrill of working in the White House was, was the history. And, and, you know, I would have it. I'm it's so disappointing. I don't want to get into politics, but it's so disappointing that that we're so divided, you know, with with hard right and hard left wing people. But people would say, oh, I, you know, I don't like the White House because Obama lived there or, or Trump lived there. And, and my response was, look, this is the people's house and it's hundreds of years of American history and leadership that's exemplified in this. So don't look at it as a current occupant. It's the people's house. And I just love that place. It was such a thrill and an honor to work there. That's pretty great. And so you got to just kind of, did you have like uh, free reign, obviously? Could you go from room to room or um, just kind of like it was What's, your workhouse? Yeah, especially in the in the very bottom floor, which was, was kind of a, um, a hallway and passageway from the east wing where I worked to the west wing. And um, it's once you get into from out of the east or west wing, you're in the, the, the White House proper and it's it's usually during the day it's it's uh, roped off and people taking tours can stand in a doorway and kind of look in and be like wow that's cool after work hours they take down the ropes and i would i would wander into the to the rooms and just you know take a closer look or when when they had um i the other great thing the tremendous thing that was such an honor in the white house was to participate in or in the audience and, and watch Medal of Honor ceremonies or um, Gold Star family recognition dinners. Um, I remember I was in in this in the audience for the recognition and remembrance of the Beirut bombings, and so to have family members who had lost their their service members in Beirut. Um, take part in a ceremony and sit next to them and hear their stories. What an amazing thing. And, and um, the White House was also opened up for, for those people and they could walk almost anywhere around just to, to take a look. And it was just an amazing place of, you know, um, of symbolism for America and, and how far we've come. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. 
better than Kyle's. Rob, stories. what's one of your for sure? Yeah, my stories are not as good as Rob's. Rob's got better mm-hmm. stories. Rob, what's one? Of, what's one of your favorite stories uh, at from the command from SA one? You got any good ones? Maybe I never heard. Uh, yeah, I. Um, you you know, you know how we were, Kyle. We were we were leaning way far forward, and and you know we had barely strapped on the wings when when we started flying. And um, one of my favorite stories um, was I was I was somewhere in Washington D.C. I was briefing somebody, and and I got a call from our operations officer. Duke and, you know, Chris Dye. And again, at the time, there was probably 20 people. And um, he said, hey, I was talking to somebody and there's an opportunity for us to send a team um, to an isolated area, work with the National Mission Force and get after it. Um, he, he said, we we have eight hours to decide. And uh, so I said, let me call a Commodore. I call a Commodore and ask for his permission. And, and we put together, you know, half of the team in a, in like a seven man organization and they fly to Africa and they do amazing, great things as, as really our, our, our first deployment, even before we commission the command. So, you know, talking about culture and DNA, it was, it was leaning forward and, and it's the seal thing about running to the sound of the guns and getting in the action that um, I was just so proud of the guys that they they pulled that off. And I think that helped us a lot in lessons learned in them coming back and and knowing what we wanted to build and how we wanted to build it. So, Chris, this is pretty cool little history antidote. I'll never forget it. Uh, a night or two before I'm about to leave on one of the, the deployments um, from the command, Rob calls a calls an all hands optional all hands at uh, the church. He's like, "Hey, guess who's going to come and pray for everybody and share a little message?" It was Pastor Miles. It was so oh, cool. Wow. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Pastor so Pastor Miles, Miles came in uh, the San yeah. Diego Rock Church. If you're listening all over the world, that's where we're located. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was so Pastor was- Miles came and worked out with us that morning, and then that night. <laughs> He, uh, he held a little service. It was pretty cool. And Rob, I've heard him multiple, actually probably three or four. Cause I'm Candace and I still go there. Uh, we're still, we, we run, uh, or a part of a couple of ministries there, but I've heard him a couple of times over the years, uh, mention that day from the pulpit, you know? Yeah. And, and it's funny cause it's in miles and he's telling the story. And he's like, yeah. And these guys don't even know where they're going tomorrow. And I'm like, well, we know miles. We know. <laughs> he does so that. that tell that story that was yeah. that was a funny time because kyle that was right before our commissioning and so what we did is is we kind of had miles and a military chaplain come in and and do um kind of a dedication and consecration of the team you know and um it was funny when i think i i, I drove across the street to pick miles up you know in the dirt lot and uh i pick him up and he kind of looks at me and you know me, I go, I go up and down in my fitness level. And this, this was a point where my fitness level was, was not seal prime. And, and he looked at me and he was like, are you a seal? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and then he said, don't you guys have to be in shape? And I'm like, okay. And so 
<laughs> we were. I told him, look, we're going to take it easy on you in this workout. And then after that, <laughs> we crossed him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and uh, Chris, it was, it was, it was, it was me back when I was in really good shape. It was me and Will Spencer running the workout the morning that miles came. So we just annihilated him. It was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And I promised him we wouldn't do that. But then when he made that comment, I was like, all right, yeah, well, boy, you got it. <laughs> I mean, it's free. about the mental game as well. Right. So you gotta do that. <laughs> okay, Rob. So so those are pretty cool stories, but how, how do you um, manage all of this with an NBA team? Do you meet with the players individually, or is this more of a systematic uh, sort of front office type thing? Or, um, you know, what does your role with the 76ers look like? So it's evolving, right? And, and so when they started the hiring process, they were looking for a vice president of athlete care. Athlete care... Um, consists of the medical department, which is our our physicians, our physical therapists, our massage therapists, um, and athlete athlete trainers. And um, then the performance side is is sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches, nutrition, our kitchen staff, our chef, all of that. So they were looking for a, someone to lead that. And my first response was, don't you think that should be someone that knows something about medical? And they're like, no, no, you don't work. You don't, you just need to let the leaders lead and, and help them be good leader. And I said, okay. But as we started working through that, I, I really um, worked with the general manager and the executive vice president for basketball operations to define the role. And, and so, you know, what Kyle read off the championship DNA and the innovation leadership development and decision-making were based on who I was and what I was bringing to the table. They hadn't had that role ever before. And then we didn't even know what they're going to name it. And they said, okay. And, and right before they hired me, they said, we think you're the vice president of strategy and vision. And I said, sure, that sounds okay to me. So the role is, is evolving. Um, and it's been a very weird time because I did six weeks, of a regular season and then we've done hiatus and then we're getting ready to start up the season with uh we used to travel a travel team was about 76 people you know almost everybody that could fit on on one of the chartered planes the nba has and and now it's down to 20 staff and the team so i won't be going down to orlando but it's been a very odd year to start a new position that's evolving. So what it looks like now is um, I, I spend a lot of time with the athlete care department, which is about 20, 25 people that are focused on players and keeping them healthy and, and performing at the highest level. And then um, I also spend a lot of time with our about seven person executive team and that's all the vice presidents executive vice presidents general manager assistant general manager and um we my time with them is focused on culture and decision making um kind of getting after you know organizational problems or um organizational communication process to to build that culture and so that's a lot of what my focus has been with those two groups. And then I've been kind of thrown in the deep end on the coronavirus. So I spent a lot of my time with the corporate 
Coronavirus Task Force, uh, led by a, a phenomenal HR director at uh, Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment, which is our corporate headquarters. And we've been talking about how you take care of people and, and you know, what's what's the mental drain for Zooming all day long. And and then, of course, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and um, the the racial and social issues blew up. And, and how does an organization respond to that? And what's the messaging? Um, I'm so proud of the, of the organization, the 76ers and Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment for really tackling all these issues head on, whether it's coronavirus. And I've seen great, tremendous leadership in, across the organization in that. And, and they're really leaning forward on, on the social issues too. Well, so you're having fun. Yeah, I'm, I am really enjoying myself. Um, it's, it's been, a, as I said, a strange year with, for everyone and in the world and in the United States, but certainly in, in basketball and 76ers. But I'm having a good time, and, and uh, it's, been, it's been a great ride so far. I'm, I'm learning a lot. On, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to break, completely break free from the mold of, oh, this guy's a military guy, and, and you know, I think he'd do great at some defense contracting job or advising X, Y, or C on military. And my whole point is, no, no, no. This is team's leadership and culture, and it applies anywhere. And so, thankfully, some of the execs at 76ers saw that and took a chance. Mm, that's great. Oh, man, so much to so many good nuggets today. Uh, as we kind of wrap up here, Rob, what I like to always do is you kind of gotten a good vibe and feel of, you know, what we're after and grabbing some nuggets from your, from that brain of yours. What's, what's a good question that maybe we haven't asked that you think pertains to kind of the message we're having today to the conversation we're having today. Well, no rush. You, you and I had, had kind of been talking about uh, what we were going to talk about today and, and, one of the one of the questions we didn't get to, which I thought was um, very interesting, is you know the the great management professor Henry Mintzberg was interviewed with Dutch Television. They said, "What would you recommend for leadership in the the 21st century?" And he said, "Less of it." And, and I thought it was fascinating for for several reasons. Um, my PhD was was about cross cultural competence in the SEAL teams. And so I studied cross-cultural competence is how you interact across cultures. And um, I kind of looked at uh, decision styles and, and maybe what mattered to um, with decision styles as it related to cross-cultural competence. But there's there's a fascinating global study on, on leadership and, and the Dutch and um, the, the Nordic nations in general have a very um, distant view of leadership, right? They they love Mintzberg when he said this, less of it, because they're very suspect of kind of the Western or American vision of great leadership. And um, as I said, I, I come from working for General Stanley McChrystal and Admiral Bill McRaven and this team of teams, tribute leadership, um, and so I guess my take on on that, you know, what do you want out of leadership is I, I would say I want more of it from everybody. Um, 
probably less of it from a single person at the top of the organization and and more of it by everyone else. Everyone is an influencer and a leader, um, regardless of whether they realize it or not. Right. The way you live your life, the way you do do your work, um, the way you interact with your family is giving a message and it's teaching a lesson, whether that's intentional or unintentional. So, you know, I, I guess my point about leadership is you are and it's what kind of leader. What are you leading towards? What values are you displaying and, and what what are going to pe- people going to take away from the way you live your life? And, and that's to me is a part of a part of leadership. That was oh, a mic drop um, moment right there. Yeah, Chris. I'm just I just love to write this stuff down. You know, you know to recap <laughs> what you've said. You know, I think a, a couple of my takeaways today, uh, Rob, are that you know you started off with. Let experts be experts, trust people to do their jobs. And I think that, you know, when it comes down to building a great culture, bringing in the right people and then getting out of their way and let them sort of thrive um, is something that so many leaders find challenging. And you, yeah, you've stated it over and over in a variety of different ways, you know, uh, how people make decisions when no one is watching. This is ultimately the goal of leadership uh, or great culture. Um, uh, you know, the, these are things that I think people find difficult uh, to bring together. And it's it's challenging because I think so many people bring their own preconceived ideas or they feel threatened or they're, they're not secure enough in their own leadership to let other people just sort of do their own thing. Um, but yeah, here you've said it over and over again, whether you've been at the White House, whether you've been at the Navy SEALs, whether you've been to 76ers, um, ultimately just get out of the way and let the experts be the experts. Um, that's sort of my lesson and big takeaway from today. Uh, let me know if I didn't get that right, but uh, I think that's good advice for everybody. No, you're you're spot on, and and as as Kyle and I were talking about uh, this this discussion and where we're going to have, I was thinking about great leaders that I'd had, and and you know my last my last job was working for Admiral Kurt Tidd at, at Southern Command, and then I've mentioned McChrystal and McRaven. All three of those guys had a mantra about, and they're four star top. You can't go any higher, and they were leading large impressive organizations. And every one of them said, look, my job is to help you guys, your, to make your job easier. So use me. They, they saw themselves as a weapon system to be fired by the command. And, and that weapon system's goal was to remove obstacles and smooth out paths. And so, you know, part of a leader is, is making it easier for your people to do their job. And to do that, you have to be thinking about other people. And, and some of the things we talked about, and I think your guys' vision of why leadership is, is um, overrated is because a lot of leaders think about themselves. You know, what privileges am I going to get by being a leader? What am I do as a leader? And, and the tremendous value of a leader is, is when they start thinking about other people and their impact on them and how they make things easier. Yep. Final word. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What are what? Uh, so closing a couple quick fire questions. We kind of like to end at what's uh, what are some of your favorite books that you're currently uh, consuming these days? 
I'm sure you, I've always known you to be a reader. I know you're reading yeah. something. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's funny. I, I, now I, I used to kind of read one book at a time and, and, uh, and I was oh, a fan of that. Now I have, you're doing my model doing <laughs> that, that I've, yeah. I've got in different, different degrees. So I try to reread every year, Victor, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning. And, um, the key takeaway on that is, look, that's not a question that we ask of life. That's a question that life asks for us. What meaning are you going to create in your life? So that's been a, a touch point for me. And I, I just reread that. Um, I'm reading The Obstacle is the Way, which is um, a book based on stoicism. Um, and the uh, the other book that uh, I'm, I'm reading that uh, my daughter gave me was, is based on a, a stu- study of uh, uh, a longitudinal study of, of people over a period of 40 years. And it's called Aging Well. And, you know, it's, it's kind of about the, the back end of, of hopefully the next 50 years of my life and, and how people succeeded at that or how they, how they, failed to flourish in, in the back end of, of, of that, uh, you know, the final nine. But so those are some of the books I'm reading. Outstanding. Any, uh, daily, uh, rituals like personal daily rituals? Um, I, I have utterly failed in that. And I believe it's incredibly important. And my better half and I always talk about, you know, things we need to do. And, um, it's, it's weird. I'm on East coast time in San Diego. So I, you know, my meetings start at 6 AM and, and finish at two. And then I'm trying to get some, some great family time in. So the, the rituals that I, I had and I enjoy when I'm on a routine is I usually did yoga at, at, you know, 6 AM in Philadelphia, I got a CrossFit workout in in the evening um, and I tried to get 30 minutes of, of reading in and, and kind of quiet time. But I've coronavirus has pulled me off the wagon on all of that good stuff. You'll be back on in no time. I know it. Chris, last two questions. Go. Okay. Yeah. You're muted, buddy. Apparently it's amateur hour for Chris on the podcast. Um, sheesh. Um, Rob, if you could give a new leader a piece of advice you wish someone would have given you early on, what would it be? Yeah, I, and I got this advice. Um, and, and it was, Chris, I don't know, or, or Kyle, I don't know if you you remember Mass Chief McIntosh. Um, yeah. He was a SEAL Team 5 icon Everyone knew him as Crazy Mac, and he was crazy as a bed bug, but a great guy. And so I'm an instant at SEAL Team 5, and and he sees me walking across the grinder, and he just, like, sprints towards me and and almost runs into me, stops right in front of me, and kind of screams, instant, who's going to help you? And I thought for a minute, and and I kind of asked him, anyone who I'll, who I ask? And he said, exactly. And he ran off. And and that really stuck with me. You know, <laughs> who's going to help you? 
freaking any teammate you ask. And so the point is, don't be afraid to ask for help, um, especially for new leaders. Right. One of the proudest things I'm I'm one of the things I'm most proud of as a junior leader was the capacity to ask questions. And, you know, as as a as a squad leader and as a platoon leader, um, my guys knew that I was going to turn to them and ask them what was their opinion. And it was funny, you know, Dano, I, I did two platoons with Dano Gearhart, and I so remember I, I went through the drill and I said, guys, what do you think about this? And Dano was pissed that day and he says, oh, why even bother? You're going to ask and you do whatever you want to. And that stuck with me. 20 years later, Dano is, is the senior chief at, at our new command. And he said, you know what one of the best things about you was? And I said, no, what? He said, you always ask questions. So uh, you know, that ask for help and ask for ask questions are, I think, the two critical things for any new leader. I, I want to second that. You know, I had, I had a guy pull me aside early on and say, you need to ask for help. Um, it's not a it's not a pride thing or a shame thing. We're here to help. I'm your leader. I'm here to help. I want to help. And you know, I thought the opposite would happen. And so once I learned that, that was great. And um, someone told me once, great leaders don't have all the answers. Great leaders know what questions to ask. Yeah. Um, and I always worked on the kinds of questions I asked in meetings or uh, for people because. Um, you know, it always helps me kind of get to the bottom of an answer. It helped me find the answers better. So I uh, couldn't agree more with that. Great answer. That made me, that made me think of a follow-up question to that one. Um, so one thing that I always personally have wished I would have learned earlier as a leader, Rob, was I wish I would have learned how to identify uh, motivators for the guys and gals that work for me and around me or that I work for how to identify and understand their motivators, but more importantly, how those motivators don't necessarily matter in, in the sense of how we, I might've, me personally, I'm not saying the whole SEAL teams do this, but how I personally might've given uh, a motivation, a, a certain prejudice. And I wish I would have learned that earlier on as a leader that that those motivations are, are unique and specific to that individual and just learn how to work with them, Kyle. God, you know, and we're sometimes our culture, the SEAL teams, I mean, I'm not speaking for everybody, I'll speak for myself, but sometimes we're very, very hard. And this, I always like to use this one, I think this one's a good one. If a guy uh, or gal in the, in the teams is motivated by recognition, meaning they want to be seen. That's an individual. They were born with that, right? How do you how do you uh, how do you motivate that guy? And you know, in the teams, we're always, we always hey, we're the humble warrior. We're the humble warrior. So it's kind of counterculture for us sometimes. But I wish as a leader, I would have earned earned uh, learned earlier on that hey, it doesn't matter if that guy is is motivated in that way or this girl's motivated by this or you know and so on and so forth. I wish I would have learned that earlier on. But so my question is to you, what is something you you wish you would have learned earlier on? Um let me think on that one. Yeah, yeah. Take time. So only in the last shoot five or six years, right? So as a senior captain in the Navy and, and now out, um, 
have I embraced fully this sense of vulnerability of, of making yourself vulnerable to everyone and, and to being confident enough in yourself that, you know, if, if you got a, if you, if you laid yourself out there and got a response that was kind of hurtful or painful, that that's okay. Right. That's, that's part of, of what you want. And, and so I think early on, um, as a leader, I was, I was too protective either in emotional engagement or, um, with how I might be seen. And, and yeah, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, who is a social scientist, University of Texas, and, and she has a great podcast. But her stuff is really about vulnerability and and honesty and and how you engage people and how you gauge yourself. So that that's you know, if, if the question is what what do I wish I'd started sooner, it's it's being being vulnerable and not caring about um, how I'm perceived as much. Um, you know, I'm good now. It doesn't, it's people, people think it was, it was weird or, or strange or, or they didn't like it. I can adjust from that, but it's not a, you know, it's not a fatal blow. Yeah. Love it. Rob, could you outswim Kyle? I couldn't outswim anybody. <laughs> I was one of the sea buoys that in, in buds, you know, you don't, I, I always tell people who ask me how fast I swim, I said, you don't have to swim fast. You just have to swim long. And um, <laughs> there was a cutoff time. And seriously, I was I was seconds in front of every swim we had. I didn't fail a swim, but but it was nip and tuck every swim. I just wasn't fast. Um, I, I was a sprinter. I was adequate in the oak course and and, you know, adequate mid range long distance runner, but, um, swimming was, um, I was in the back of the crew. I love listening to you. You seals tell me you were adequate <laughs> as if that's still not light years ahead. Well, he, has of the to hear, dude. he has to hear it from me, Rob, because <laughs> I was in the back of the back of the bus for the runs. I was always like one of the, the old bottom 10% for the runs, you know, well, it's, funny it's funny, you know, Chris, you don't really meet that many, seals that were like i mean obviously we we are they're world class but you don't meet that many that were like the number one guy all the time it's not really that common yeah yeah <laughs> a lot of those but, guys will quit you know well, i was I thinking it. i've met your friends how <laughs> your burden was heavier because um if you're slow on a run you're guaranteed goon squad i do not remember a swim goon squad ever Right? They just hit you up. It's like, hey, we got to get other stuff. But a run, you were getting in. You're getting a circus if you're in the back. Wait, what's a goon squad? <laughs> so, um, on usually there's there's two ways. Uh, runs were happened all the time, but but uh, in in PT and other evolutions, they kept a log of people who lagged behind. So if if you failed. Uh, a run or a swim, or you were were kind of screwing around and not staying up with uh, with PT on the grinder. You'd get in a logbook, and at the end of the day, they would call out people in the logbook, and that's the goon squad. Or sometimes, if if they had time in the schedule, right after a run, anybody who 
who was behind some imaginary line that they drew in the group were too slow. And the, the theory was they weren't putting out enough. And so they were going to help you put out. And so you got extra instructor attention with, you know, eight, five, eight count bodybuilders or log PT or, or whatever. I avoided the goon squad religiously. I, I wanted no part of that. But what I've heard, and Admiral Craven tells <laughs> Not it, this guy. <laughs> Admiral Craven tells a story that, uh, you know, the guys that, that hit the goon squad a lot were just getting extra training. And by the end of Buzz, they were they were in the best shape ever. <laughs> this is true. This is true. This is true. I think I lost uh, from the beginning to the end. I think I lost 20 pounds uh, body weight and probably about five, four to 5% body fat loss too, you know? So goon squad, goon squad captain over here. <laughs> I'm telling you they, because they pick on slow runners more than anybody else. Yeah. But, uh, well, so Rob, Rob, this has been great. It's a pleasure. It's been phenomenal. It's been phenomenal. And as we close up, one thing we always like to do is if you have a, a something that you're working on, an initiative, a charity that's close and near dear to your heart, um, any maybe a personal project, anything that you would like to uh, share or we can share and market for you, please don't do it now. We can do it later. You just let us know, please. Yeah, so I'm I'm an ambassador for the Honor Foundation. The Honor Foundation is a SEAL transition organization. It's a 501c um, nonprofit, and it's it's really an executive course that takes about three months. Um, originally designed for SEALs, and now opened up to the entire special operations force. They have campuses um, in. Um, I think North Carolina, in Norfolk, Virginia, in San Diego, and they, they have a virtual course. But that's how I, I became a 76er is somebody on the 76er staff reached out to the Honor Foundation and said, I, we want to interview some SEALs for this job. And the Honor Foundation reached, to me, reached out to me and they're, they're a constant bridge between you know, some of America's finest leaders and the corporate world. So they do fantastic work. Look them up, the Honor Foundation or THF, and uh, donate either your time or or some money to to the effort. We love it. Um, actually, we're gonna have, or we have had, depending on what, where you're uh, listening to this podcast and what order, uh, Joe Musselman, the founder of the Honor Foundation, on this podcast. And so, if you haven't heard it, it's a great one. Um, if you have heard it, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, Joe's a great guy. I've been on my own. Hey, everybody. We had a great show today. Thank you for listening. Kyle, thanks for uh, jumping in and uh, saving me when my mic was on, mic was on mute. Um, and uh, uh, I learned so much from Rob today. What a great guy. What a great wealth of experience. Um, mm -hmm. Focusing on culture, right. focusing on leadership. Um, let great people do great things. Um, and culture defines how you live. Such good stuff today from him. Uh, we want to encourage you to listen to the rest of these podcasts. We've got good stuff in here from everyone. Joe Musselman, uh, Larry McIntosh, Dan Turner, just to name a few. We hope you enjoyed it. Please head over to iTunes and uh, leave us some reviews. I know I talk too fast, so if you, you don't need to say that, but uh, it's cool. Uh, if you don't want to give us four stars or five stars for that, four will do. Uh, we appreciate it. 
share this platform that you know um, about it. And, uh, and if you want, we're getting ready to potentially launch a book. So uh, head over to cultureforce.team and pre-register. Uh, we'll send you some information about that when it becomes available. Uh, until then, though, have a great rest of the, your day. Rest of have the day, day. Rest of your day. Whatever you we can, say, Kyle. Whatever it might yeah. be. You know. Take care. Trying to, trying to find my way home